Hey everybody, welcome to Applying to Everything, a show about our passions, the world, and where they overlap. I'm your host, Bruno Falcon. In this week's episode, I sat down with Sebastian Johnson, a policy consultant, former third grade teacher, and 2016 candidate for the Board of Education in Montgomery County, Maryland. We talked about education policy, running for office, and what Sebastian had for breakfast. Enjoy. For fun, let me get a level. Uh, tell me what you had for breakfast. I had eggs, bacon, and toast. <laughs> eggs, bacon, and toast. Standard. Awesome. Fig, fig preserves, not not jelly. Okay, fig preserves. So, like, are fig preserves, yes, organic market fig, fig preserves, or like some of the Union Market super bougie. It was. Uh, it's like the the one you can get at the grocery store. It's like the Bon Maman. Mm-hmm. That one. Nice. You know. Nice. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. I feel like DC's uh, DC's food scene has gotten a little bit crazy though. Each peach, the one over in Mount Pleasant, um, uh-huh. they have like their donuts are ludicrously expensive. Like it's a dollar a donut, which doesn't wow. seem like that much, but it's still just like a dollar. Like you're spending twelve bucks well, for like, a dozen donuts. That's that's a lot of money for donuts. That is a lot. That's more like a, what you would associate with a bagel. Yeah, like I pay I pay a dollar for a bagel, but like a donut, sixty. Yeah, it's Maybe 60 cents, 75, yeah. 75 cents, if it's a really good donut. If it's a really good donut. Like cream-filled or like right. if it's like a bear claw or something big. Right. It's, it can't just be like a glazed donut. No. It's like, that's not, <laughs> come on now. Yeah, that's a little bit much. It's gotten weird. I There's a place by my office in DuPont that they have bagels and, and it's it's delicious. And mm-hmm. you can get like sopressata and like fancy cheeses, but it's like $8 for a breakfast bagel. And you're like... No, I can't do this every day. I feel like I could I could spend I can spend eight dollars on breakfast with a cup of coffee, like yeah. with a good cup of coffee, right? But eight dollars for the breakfast sandwich, like because that's a twelve dollar breakfast. Exactly. If you get a cup of coffee, maybe get a banana. Yeah. And that's just it's that's lunch prices. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a lot. And it's like you're not going to spend that at breakfast and then again at lunch. No. And then the other thing I don't like about breakfast to start my work day is that at like two o'clock. Or three o'clock, I'm hungry again. Mm-hmm. But it's too late for lunch. Yeah, like you know, you can't like take your lunch break. You're probably finishing up for the day, and then you're just hungry all the way till dinner. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't know. So <laughs> there was a there was a time. Are we recording? Yeah. We're <laughs> okay. no, we're live. <laughs> there was a time where I was like, I'm not gonna do politics. I'm gonna open a food truck. <laughs> I remember that yeah. you and I remember you had been talking to you had you talked to Alex um, yeah. about about investing. I remember that. Yeah, it, and so I, I have considered all of the negatives of the breakfast food market. <laughs> right, because you guys, it was going to be a breakfast sandwich food truck. Yeah, oh, but the price point has to be way low, right. and like you know, no one wants really to eat breakfast. It's aspirational. People want to be the people who eat breakfast, but they don't. You know. I, in the last year, have, like, significantly cut back on breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really, like, a year and a half ago, I was really into eating breakfast as a thing. Like, I'm going to get up every morning. And even, like, when when I was with my ex, we mm-hmm. would, like, we would cook every morning. And it's easier when you're living with somebody. Because yeah, it's like you cook definitely. for each other. Like, if, you, if you're if you up a little bit earlier, you can make... And it's easier to cook breakfast, breakfast for two. Exactly. Like, breakfast for two is much, much more manageable. It is. But... In the last, in the last like six months, I've just been like, you know what? If especially if I don't work out, I don't fucking need breakfast. Like, yeah, I just don't. I'll right. grab a banana, you know. But like, yeah. I, don't... I just have, I just have coffee. Yeah, and I used to have like a yogurt, mm-hmm. but then even that, I just have like gotten out of the habit of having. Just out of curiosity, do you get like? Does that mean your lunches started move up, moving up? Like, are you hungry for lunch by like ten, eleven o'clock? No, I usually get lunch at like noon like i'll start to get hungry for lunch mm-hmm. but then i don't usually get it till like one okay because i'm usually like there's something you have to do yeah there's always lunch. yeah <laughs> you think about lunch and then something comes up and then exactly <laughs> yeah cool well um great so i think the first thing i wanted to talk about mm-hmm. just sort of just sort of to dive into this um head on mm-hmm. is that I don't know much about how you got into educating. Like, I I mean, when we mm-hmm. were growing up, everybody was interested in politics because we were here in the city. But exactly. you especially were, were very involved in student politics and mm-hmm. then in school politics 
at large. Um, but what what took you down the path of education? Like, how do you how do you choose that mm-hmm. over like the you know going into policy or thinking about law school early on? Um. So I mean, I mean, a lot of it was my mom. My mom was a uh, a career educator, so she taught thirty years at the same elementary school in Petworth, Raymond Elementary School. Um, and so growing up, I was always around like education in the conception that to educate us to serve was always like, uh, just an idea that I grew up with in my household. Um, and then also senior year, I, I was a, a teacher's assistant to Mr. Mogi, mm-hmm. who was like my world history teacher. And he gave me a lot of latitude to actually think about writing curriculum and writing lessons and delivering lessons and allowed me the the space to really think about whether or not this was something I wanted to do. And I found that I really enjoyed it um, and decided, you know, at that point I was on the school board. And so the issue of education and education policy was something that was, that was important to me. And I was understanding it from that perspective. But seeing that I also enjoyed the process of writing lessons and delivering lessons and thinking about how to make a subject that was I was really passionate about, which was history, engaging and fun, um, was what motivated me to do it. And so I decided that I wanted to, you know, be an educator and went to Georgetown and they didn't have an education to, like degree program. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I'll, you know, I'll study history and, and economics, which was what that was what I wanted to teach. I wanted to be a, a high school history teacher. And decided in 2010 to join Teach for America um, and was placed in elementary school, um, which was what my, what my mom was an elementary school teacher for 30 years. And so I, it, it was interesting that I ended up doing full circle, just ended up doing the same thing. When I, when I talked to her about it, she was like, I had no idea that you were going to do exactly the same thing that I did. <laughs> I knew that you wanted to go into education and you were going to do Teach for America, but she was like, I had no idea you'd end up doing the same thing. Right. Um, but it was really cool. You can't help but to learn about the society that you live in when mm-hmm. you are teaching or interacting with kids. Right. Um, because everything outside of education policy comes into your classroom. Right. Like you see all of the effects of negative. So even even something as basic as land use policy. So I taught in this in this community in Massachusetts called Lawrence, Massachusetts. It's the poorest town in Massachusetts. Um it was historically uh, a textile town, a factory town, and waves of immigrants had come over from Europe um, during the 1800s. And so the Lawrence family, like one of the, the Boston Brahmin families, had founded some of the first textile mills in America up on the Merrimack River, so mm-hmm. Lowell and Lawrence. And eventually in the 70s, the last wave of immigrants that came were from the Dominican Republic. And it was right around this time that the mills, like the, the textile factories collapsed. Right. So now there's about, there's like one or two factories. There's a new balance factory and there might be another factory, but the town is very economically depressed. Next door is Andover, which is one of the wealthiest towns in Massachusetts separated by a highway, of course. And the people in Lawrence work in Andover, uh, like, you know, in the service economy. It's where uh, Phillips Andover is, where the, the Bushes went to school. And that that basic economic dynamic has been going on since the 1830s. They founded Andover as like the nice town where we'll live and we'll have a factory town. Right. And that dynamic has played out into in two different school systems, two different life trajectories. But it's all within this one compact, one square mile. Right. Um, and I think that when you talk to any educator, they have that similar understanding of when you work in a disadvantaged school, like you you have a different window onto what the society is. Right. So you're seeing you're seeing not just you're not just seeing the impacts of education, but you're seeing the impacts of all of the bits and pieces in like how how your students home lives are shaped by local communities and like what that what that means in terms of both your challenges as an educator and the challenges of those students looking forward. And I mean, did you feel like did you feel like there was a responsibility to try and mitigate that or was it was it just sort of helping to steer the stream as much as you could within mm-hmm. the confines of the system that you were you were working inside of? I think it's important for educators to have that understanding of of the broader context, but like there is there is a kind of a tension between like because your job on a day-to-day level as an educator is to build relationships with students. 
Um, and I think that one of the sad things about education policy and about public education in general is that we've lost sight of that. We think that the job of an educator is to move a student through competency and mastery, like a certain amount of growth each year. Like there are so many different metrics on how you measure the success that you lose out of that. Like I'm with you for a year and my job is to build a relationship with you. It's going to be meaningful enough to, to make you want to pursue your own goals, right. which is hard. Like that's kind of an art. Like there's no, like, how do you measure that and how do you do it effectively? And so I think that's the, the key challenge to the craft of teaching um, I don't think you can do it well without understanding the broader social con construct that, that your students exist in and that you exist in. Um, and so I guess that's, that's what took me to education. Um, and I, I think I realized after teaching that I, I did ultimately want to pursue some of this broader policy and wanted to dive into, uh, the deeper, reasons and 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 understanding why essentially my classroom looked the way it did and the system was set up the way it was right. um jumping ahead and yeah uh, we'll, we'll come back um just you said something really fascinating to me uh mm -hmm. the the difference between you know developing that relationship and just propelling your students to the next metric mm -hmm. did you when when you started to transit i mean both growing up in you know, in the political sphere, mm -hmm. and as you started tr transition into policy and to look at running for office, is that something that you saw paralleled in the way public officials were dealing with their constituency, or mm. or the way, more importantly, the way local and state governments were dealing with their populace? Mm -hmm. I think I think we're, that the from the public perception, mm. and also I think from the politicians' perception, there's not a lot of trust. Like, there's been an erosion of trust between the people who are governed and, and those who are attempting to govern. Right. Um, and I think that that has to do with a lot of what's happening in our political system is that that trust is eroded. And I mean, there and there is that parallel to to a classroom. Like, if you, you know, the the first month of, of your experience in the classroom is the most important because that's when you're laying the ground rules about what is a classroom community and what what are the rules that we're going to choose to govern ourselves and what what happens if the rules are broken mm -hmm. um and so i taught third grade third grade i am very biased <laughs> is, is the best grade by far <laughs> because the kids are excited like they have they still have that childlike sense of wonder has mm -hmm. been crushed out of them by the testing system because <laughs> they haven't been tested yet right Right. It's like a cruel joke to play because you're like, okay, this this is great. It's going to be super hard. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But it's also that they have a maturity that they don't have when they're like first or second graders. Right. So that's one of the amazing things about children and, and growing up is that like each year can be so like my, my fiance just turned 29 yesterday. 29 and 28 are essentially the same. Right. But six and seven or seven and eight are light years in yeah. difference. Yeah. And so we would we would always start the year with this. Um, it was like my my favorite lesson that I wrote was, you know, the standard says you know set some rules and like for the classroom have the kids participate. So we did a like a short social studies lesson in like Hobbesian philosophy, and I was like, okay, we're gonna learn about like nasty, brutish, and short, and like we're gonna talk about like why do we need rules? Right. Because kids hate rules. Yeah. Like basically, because they're like, <laughs> I never get to write them. And they're always imposing me and no one ever explains it. It's like, cause I said so, like do it. Um, and so we had this whole thing where like, what would it be like if you didn't have any rules? We're going to establish some rules together and like write them up and like actually debate and like think about like what makes sense. We'll establish like the consequences for those rules as a community. And then we're going to write them all up on our class constitution. We're all going to sign it. So that anytime <laughs> you break a rule, I can point to it and be like, your signature is on it. Yeah. You know, and so it all it's also a really good segue into because that's the year you learn about the American Revolution, mm -hmm, like all mm -hmm. of these ideas about what our country is about and what it is that we're trying to do together. Um, but I think that we've lost as a people some of that trust. Like there's there's not a basic understanding of what the compact is and like what the point is. Yeah. Um, and so that is that was like a really direct. You know thinking about how do you form a classroom community and then how how do 
how values are so important and like if you don't trust the values of the other of the pe- person on the other side it's it's hard to to get anywhere to build the relationships yeah for sure i mean it's it's fascinating that i mean that sounds like i i, I know i'm totally biased coming uh-huh. from the school system that we came up in like mm-hmm. that sounds like that's something that's really familiar to me but not something that i recognize often as being unique like yeah. the idea of having a conversation at that age about what it is to buy into a social contract mm-hmm. not not as such but like being able to say okay the rules are things that we agree to because we decide to be a part of a family or or a society or an organization and in choosing to stay a part of that thing we're choosing a certain set of boundaries mm-hmm that are implicit in being present. Right. Um, And it's especially now when you look at sort of the way Tea Party politics and libertarian politics have sort of spilled over into the the contemporary, the zeitgeist of your truth versus my truth. Right. It feels like it's not even trust. It's it's objective reality that people can't agree on anymore. And so it's fascinating. Like it's it's just astounding to me how how little we talk about in the public eye the requirements of the social contract, and how little and and how that that could be consequential of our not focusing on it with kids. Like the yeah. "I told you so" is so is so ingrained in the American like not even education system the the zeitgeist of the American upbringing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's it's like you don't question. And I and I think part of that is that like if, if there's a, like you have to buy into it, mm-hmm. and I think that lots of people rightly have taken a look at our social contract and they're like, I'm not going to buy into this. It yeah. doesn't work for me. Um, and I think that that's that's another part that we've lost sight of. I think in in Washington, it's easy for us to focus on the the out the after effects. It's like there's so much incivility. Right. There's so much partisanship. Like people are so angry without really stopping to think, well, it's like, what are the legitimate reasons that people have for anger? Right. Like, why are people not buying into something that they once, you know, saw as like, you know, the foundation, like the rhetoric, I mean, it's always been kind of empty, but the rhetoric around like leader of the free world and like last best hope for democracy and all of this stuff, like people (laughs) just don't buy into it. They're like, I don't want to hear it. Well, right. Because we, we, I mean, leave it to beaver was Mm -hmm. a total fabrication of like Mm -hmm. what it's, it's what would be except the promise of like the promise of factory jobs for Mm -hmm. everyone Mm -hmm. denied the necessary advancement of like, we're going to keep moving forward. Technology is going to keep getting better at doing this job. Then you will be able to ever be because like at some point, because you're going to get old and you're going to retire and then we're going to have to teach somebody new how to do it. But technology doesn't have to relearn. It doesn't. Um, and, and I think to some extent we've like, because we set up such this, such a, an effective, such an effective facade of like what the end goal would be, Uh we've been able to not focus on how to keep people there. Exactly. Like we, so, so it's really easy to say, well, we'll pull funding away from education and put it into our military because that's defending mm-hmm. this vision of, of the American dream or, or we'll put it into like corporate tax structures because that's defending this, you know, capitalist vision of what mm-hmm. it takes to, you know, have the white picket fence and two and a half kids and a car in the garage. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as I get off track a little bit. No, no. I, I think that, I think that's right. It's, it's both how do you conceive of what the American dream is and then, you know, is it under threat? I think those are kind of the, the, the tensions that are in our politics right now. It's like, yeah. what is it? Because we can't we don't agree on what it is. Right. But some people see it as under threat and some people are like, no, it's getting better. Like it and and how you manage that tension, I think, is But something something you said reminded me, like it brought it back to education for me, which mm-hmm. is you know, what is the purpose of it? Like, what is the purpose of going to school? Like, right. are we supposed to be? And we have a, a system that kind of was appropriate maybe for factory workers. Maybe it was never appropriate for factory workers. Right. But it was our our K-12 kind of comprehensive system. Right. What should you know how to do at the end of the 12 years that you spend in the education system? And that's a whole nother set of questions that bears on, like, what it means to be an educator. Right. Because um, I my very narrow conception of building a relationship with a person and trying to 
I'd help them identify goals and mm-hmm. reach their potential does not include like it's kind of vague and it doesn't encompass like basic computational skills or writing skills right or or, or like what it takes to like do your taxes and mm-hmm. and you know not and and be able which to hold we don't up, teach which we don't teach or 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 just hold up i mean and we don't even teach anymore how to hold up an intelligent conversation or how to how to argue and debate yes. properly rather than like yell at each other yes um talking past each other is mm-hmm. i mean and i is it's a whole lot easier because it's not skilled work whereas right. you know you know what what makes me so i think the silver lining and and the shitstorm that is our politics mm-hmm. is that and what makes me optimistic about it is that what we're trying to do is unprecedented mm-hmm. like in a way like we we compare ourselves to the 50s and the 60s and like you know Henry Clay and Daniel Webster like the 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 greats of of our American republic right this is the first time in our history that we're truly trying to build a broad-based representative republic that everyone is participating in. Right. Many of the voices that you hear, like your aunt on Facebook who's saying like all kinds of crazy stuff, was just not participating in politics. Right. There was no structure for her to do it. Right. And so part of what we're saying is like the democratization of like our politics. That should be a good thing. People <laughs> who did not have the right to vote as little as 50 years ago now can vote and they're participating and they want to see themselves reflected in the politics. It's good. Yeah. The problem is that we don't, I, I think in some ways we don't have the capacity to, like before when there were only five or six accepted narratives, you could have a shared objective fact base. But what do you do when there's just so many narratives? Like how do you wade through that? I think is what we're grappling with and, and to some extent failing as a nation. Right. But, I'm optimistic because it's like we're trying, like it's something new that we're trying to do. It's not, it's a disintegration of a system that worked, that is not going to work for a full participatory politics now. So yeah, well, because it's it's also uh, sort of taking it back to the American dream and to and to and in some ways to the purpose of education, mm-hmm. we're we're embracing that there isn't just one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, when I when I think about like where education was at the end of world war ii mm-hmm. it was sort of like we're gonna we're prosperous enough that we need you to be skilled but we also want a well-rounded populace sort of based on the pseudo aristotelian platonic model of well people should just know things yeah you know which is very which is very aristocratic yep and and sort of the so the contemporary k-12 models seems like it's trying to hold the everyone can have this aristocracy yep. in balance with we need a working populace that can do skilled labor exactly to an extent um and i think that over the last 50 years the the scales have tilted away from everyone needs this sort of baseline understanding of history and literature and uh and philosophy and science to you got to pass the test because you got to know how to hit the benchmarks because benchmarks are the thing that drive productive working class. Right. Um, the, the productive working class. And so do you think, do you think that, I mean, having, having engaged, having engaged with the populace, mm-hmm. both as someone running for office and as an educator, do you feel like there's room for a more relationship based, mm-hmm. um, a more relationship based sort of, less individual goal oriented, more like personalized structural development oriented, uh, voice in like in the broader populace of pop politics, or is it, is it going to take us, take us some time to really shift gears, Mm -hmm. um, away from like, okay, well I got to make sure that the lobbyists who have contributed to me are happy and make sure that money's coming into the district. Because if I don't do that, then a, I won't be able to provide the jobs that I said I would provide, but I also won't get reelected because the other guy will have more money. Yeah. And I think that, so that kind of tension between, I I mean, I, I, it's a really deep, so I think that for an educator, you, you're building relationships because you have, that's just the, 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 the student-teacher relationship. There's an aspect of, of that that's relationship-based. As a public figure, right. I mean, some of it, like you have to be relatable. 
Maybe. People have to, yeah, people have to understand something about you to be like, I, they have to mm-hmm. be able to look at you and get it in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, I understand what your motivation is to do it. I get why you're doing it. I get why it makes sense for you to do it. And if like people struggle to, to get it mm-hmm. with like the, the message that you have or the narrative that you're trying to, to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's a relationship part to that, but it is, it is kind of transactional in a way, right? which I don't think is a bad thing. I think that's a mm-hmm. proper conception of like what you want your elected official to do. Right. Like you want them to do the job of an elected official, which I think is also a, an interesting. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a principal agent problem. Right. It's like, we're trying to choose someone to do the things that we ourselves would do right. or that we think would, would have judgment or share the same values as us in making the decision, mm-hmm. knowing full well that like, they'll disappoint you. And like, you could be, you know, the, the citizen who has a set of voting issues that you vote on, or you could be a lobbyist who, I mean, it's the same kind of relationship. Sure. Um, and I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the hard thing of, I think that's kind of the, the probably the, the thing about being a candidate that you like the least mm-hmm. is balancing those mm-hmm. different considerations. Cause there's, there's never an easy answer to really any question. I don't know. I mean, that I think that's a lot of rambling to get to the, to, to say that I think this is a, a key difference between like a student and a teacher. Cause I don't think, I don't think the students come to the teacher wanting to, it's like, I, 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 this is a transactional. I want an A. Right. I'm going to do the paper. You're going to give me the A. I was like, that, that's it, you know. But I, well, so the, the, the parallel I, I started seeing was mm-hmm. less uh, like student teacher, student and teacher and more, so more the, the voting populace as parents mm. and the requirements of testing and of you know institutional structure mm-hmm. as paralleled in what we see in the relationship that many politicians have with lobbyists right and then uh, okay and then okay. like so in that and then students <clears throat> are like students are i don't know kind of the policies and laws in that like in that in that parallel students aren't your students aren't your populace exactly they're the they're they're the policies that you're putting forward because you want them to succeed down the road and to exactly. do good things exactly. and, to, and to have a life of their own that carries on something. Right. Cool. Yeah. And that, <laughs> no, I, I think, and that is a particular feature of, I think school board politics, which makes school board politics very different from other, from really any other politics. Yeah. Because it, it, there's a part of it that's about your values and about your theory about what works. Right. And there's some other part of it that's like very deeply personal because it's like this is my kid, and 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 you do honestly with school board politics, and, and this is something I I knew, but but that was I, I was I really started to understand is that there there is kind of a client patron relationship in school board politics between school board members and parents, right? Like that parents have their favorite school board members. And like organized to elect them, and like, you know, it was a little different for me because I'm not, you know, I'm not a parent in the district, mm-hmm. so I wasn't really plugged into a lot of these networks. But that's a primary way in which school board members get elected is through the PTAs and through through that network of, of active parents, right? Um, which is interesting. Um, it's it's an interesting interaction with public service because. It's like you directly benefit in very real ways if you can navigate that system. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has implications for how resources are spent at the school level. Wow. So it's, yeah. It's interesting politics. I learned a lot. I don't, I think I learned enough to be like this, I'm really going to have to consider. <laughs> Whether or not you <laughs> want to. I ever want to do, yeah. It's like, does that ever make sense again? Right. Um, but it's, it is it is fascinating, and if anyone is thinking about doing it, I, I highly suggest running for local office. There's nothing, nothing will teach you more about like our democracy or about politics than like the very small retail politics that govern govern local office. It's fascinating to me, at least. Do you think that? Do you think that local politics? Do you think that 
the education system in this country over the last three decades has supplied enough people with the resources they need to be fully engaged in that sort of office. Just because I'm thinking about like mm-hmm. in, in DC and especially like on the 95 corridor, mm-hmm. um, the education system is a little is I mean, it's it's you have pockets where it looks a lot more like most of uh, middle America. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But for the most part, local I mean, local political offices like city boards, school boards, it, you've got you've got people who have gone through the ringer. Most of them have probably gone to college or at mm-hmm. least, you know, trade school have, you know, have experience in. Uh, have experience in either business or in some way in the community that that puts them in a position to be able to govern, you know, to govern and to inter- interact with people in a way that's a little bit more, more informed. Um, but looking at looking at the institutional rankings mm-hmm. of the Amer- American education system, like, do you fe- do you feel like and this is, of course, an entirely subjective question. Yeah. Uh, as there's this big groundswell of people running for local office, is this going to be a problem that we're going to have to start addressing mm. directly? That the people running are 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 they qualified or are they either underqualified or even if they're even if they're qualified on the baseline, they right. don't have access. Like either they don't have resources built on their yeah. previous education, or because of the limitations of their local education system, have a hard time getting res- you know getting access to those resources. Right. Or more importantly, as those local as those local officials start to rise up and move towards, you know, state level or federal uh, offices, mm-hmm. like, is this going to be something that we're going to have to start reckoning with a little bit more directly as there's this groundswell of local involvement in, mm-hmm. in, in, you know, local involvement in politics? I think I think that making sure that it's representative and that people have access to it is definitely a huge concern. Um you know, all the all the studies have shown that, like, if you are a person of color or you're a woman, you have to be asked many, many times to run for something before you actually do it or, or see yourself in the role. And part of that is, you know, do voters get it? Like, part of it is, is because there hasn't been representation, mm-hmm. you have a higher barrier with a lot of voters. Mm-hmm. Um, for So, for an instance for me is that on the school board, I think the median age on the school board is... Wet, I think it's well over 50, mm-hmm. um, which is not to say, like, it's not an ageist thing or or an acknowledgement that, like, it's not that you can't do the job. It's just that's the conversation with the school board. Right. So if you're 27 and you're running for the school board and you don't have kids, people are like, why? Yeah. I don't get it. There's a part of it that it's like, I get, like, you know, you're an educator and, like, you have a policy background and these are the things you care about. Mm-hmm. I get it on that. But I don't understand why you want to be on the school board. Um, And so people would supply their own answers. They'd be like, well, you just want to get on the school board so you can have some other job. (laughs) And so so it's like, well, I'm not on the school board. So like, that would be pretty premature of me to be plotting to get another job. Right. For, I don't even have this job. Right. I'm trying to get this one. Yeah. Um, but that stuck for a lot of people because they're like, well, I don't understand what other reason there would be. Um, and so for people, for women and for people of color, there's an extra hurdle, like you know, I don't get it. I don't see you in the position. Right. Um, you are a, a woman who is, you know, very assertive. I, I read it as like shrill, or I read it as like you're a bitch, or like you're my ex-wife. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. all these yeah. horrible misogynist things you hear, like right. on campaign trails all the time. Yeah. Um, and so that that is going to be a problem. Is like the representation. Do mm-hmm. I have access to like actually doing this right. at the local level? Right. And then the other part is that at the local level, it's harder to to be noticed because the there's an a, there's an economy of attention in politics, and mm-hmm. all of it has been sucked up by the presidential election. Mm-hmm. Every cycle is about the president, mm-hmm. um, and so if you can't break through, and now that the money is starting to trickle down mm-hmm. from from the federal level into local politics, mm-hmm. and that will increase in the next cycle because everyone's running, yeah. right? Yeah. So if everyone is running, it's great. We have participation, but it's like it's even more expensive to be heard. Um, and so those those dynamics are things I think we have to take into account. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it is just you have to just do it. People have to know who you are, and you probably have to lose a couple of times before you win. Yeah, but. yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that 
I mean, in your experience, I know like your so your run was sort of in the midst of the in the midst of Bernie, in mm-hmm. the midst of Hillary, in the midst like in the midst of Trump, Trump. like yeah. that 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 insanity, and um, social media ended up playing a much bigger role than it had in the past mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Like it's just more pervasive in our lives, but also people are better at leveraging it. I mean, yep. you know, advertisers and campaigners are better at plugging into Twitter and Facebook mm-hmm. and Instagram and really pushing that message. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that in a post-Bernie world, in a post-Hillary world, it'll be easier to leverage that on the local level? Like, do you, did you feel, or, or did you feel mm-hmm. like there was a transition over the course of your campaign where it felt like exposure was a little bit easier to get um, as things went forward and as people mm-hmm. were turning more to social media and less um, less towards contemporary news sources, papers, I and, think, and cable. I think that the, the social media atmosphere and the fact that 40% of Americans got their news from Facebook last year, that was, for me, the defining factor of, the, like, the defining fact of the cycle. Mm-hmm. And we very early on, like, we were going, we knew we were going to be a social media campaign. Mm-hmm. Um. We use social media really intentionally to build momentum, to connect like our supporters to like opportunities to like come out and and see us or to support us in a way or to or to share. Mm-hmm. It's also hugely effective for giving. Um, giving is what most you know. It's it was the most the most likely thing that people were going to do for me. Right. It was if I'm like, I need 20 bucks from you and I can just go put my credit card information in. I'll do that. Mm-hmm. Really couldn't get a lot of people to show up. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's like, hey, we're having a school board forum. Like, all the candidates are going to be there. We need people to show up and, like, you know, hold signs. It's like, it's hard to get someone to do that on, on a Wednesday at 7 o'clock in the middle of Montgomery County. People are like, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um. So it's like, we're, we're showing up to that, but, like, people are willing to, like, fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we significant we raised we outraised like our nearest competitor like three to one mm-hmm. just basically because we had so much support on social media right people giving twenty five dollars right. at a time right um, so that's that's kind of like huge and that and you saw that with Bernie and you saw that with a lot like Jamie mm-hmm. with with small donors yeah um, where we did not have as much success as like in the actual old fashioned ground game right. Uh, we had a lot of success on social media. We had a lot of momentum mm-hmm. on social media, which was also key for getting uh, endorsements. Mm-hmm. And the, the endorsements, as those started to roll in, they, they build their own momentum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Montgomery County is is a huge county. It's a million people spread out over a vast amount of space. And so yeah. ground game like matters, and it's hard to do that in a school board race. Yeah, You know, 20, 25K is not going to buy you ground game. Right. Um, yeah. And so, really, that election comes down to like it's word of mouth, mm-hmm. and people just have to know who you are. And in four months, we were unable, like we were unable to really just establish enough of a profile with voters to to get over that hump. Right. Um, but what we were able to do, I think, was in large part due to social media mm-hmm. and understanding how do you build an audience in Facebook, and how do you present yourself and your narrative in a way that makes those people want to see you in elected office yeah for sure yeah um turning that back a little Uh bit um how how do you feel like that social media engagement can play into uh engaging with students and especially at the elementary level Mm -hmm. engaging with parents Mm. especially because like when when we talk about when we talk about home life when we talk about early education so much of what like so much of the actual time educating goes on outside of the classroom. It's right. so heavily relies upon some parental engagement or at least the space for kids to be able to, you know, continue being mentally engaged in the space outside mm-hmm. of the classroom. Um, do you feel like there's room for that, for that space to develop a little bit? Like, or are there, are there things that are, I mean, I'm not, I'm not as cued in as somebody who's, you know, in their late twenties and mm-hmm. doesn't have kids, yeah. um, is there space to like tap into that a little bit more and to and to do that a little bit more in a way that parents can engage in a little more easily than like phone calls and parent teacher conferences, right? And, and sort of so, thing. like, kind of this ed tech space, sort of like, how are we integrating these social media technologies like, mm-hmm. to the classroom? I, there are a lot of companies that are trying to figure it out. I think that 
one of the problems with the ed tech space is that the privacy concerns are so much they're just so 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 large they loom so large over anything that happens in public education that like the technologies end up being clunky right um or they had to be implemented in a way so this is also my experience in the classroom was 2010 to 2012 i'm sure that by now yeah. like even just five years later it's way better yeah um but i, I think there that for two reasons i think that's going to be a growing space one is that there's so much that teachers have to do mm-hmm. now as part of the job of, of being a teacher that there needs to be some kind of way that technology is mediating that to make that easier. Right. Part of the problem with some technologies is the way they're rolled out is like, is not easier. So like in my classroom, we had a whiteboard and then the next year they installed a smart board and we had like a 20 minute conversation with like the, the tech guy mm-hmm. about the smart board. So I, right. I was like, I have no idea how it works. <laughs> And it takes so long to turn on that, like, I lose half my lesson. Mm-hmm. And it's so buggy that, like, because, you know, so many of these are, like, by the time it gets to, like, the disadvantaged school, it's, like, this is a smart board that doesn't really work that well. We made too many. <laughs> Someone donated them. Yeah. We're going to put it in your classroom. <laughs> so it's, like, okay, I don't know how to use this, and it eats up all my classroom time, so I just use the whiteboard. Right. I don't, I don't use this. Right. So that's part of the problem with the ed tech is that, the way it's implemented is just terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think there's space for it. Mm-hmm. And I think the other reason, so the one reason is that teachers need like time saving and like job enhancing techniques. Mm-hmm. Students are geared to be, they're like the, I guess the buzz term is digitally na- digital natives. Like they understand sure. it. You can, you can, they have more facility with it. And then parents are also like, now parents are, are our age. Right. You know, they, they also have some, capacity for it whereas mm-hmm. like 10 years ago it was like i don't i never use this right um but I, I i think that that could be a place where you could see some some growth mm-hmm. um i'm a little i'm a little bit skeptical of of tech solutions just because i am very wedded to the idea that being a teacher is about building relationships right um if the technology helps you do that if right. you're able to give like individual feedback and right. to like monitor with your student that's one thing but if it's just in the way of you having that face-to-face interaction then it's it's not going to be useful yeah for sure um do you feel like did you feel like the limitations of actual class time like when you were teaching and i know that i mean i think this is from my understanding it's gotten a little bit worse over the, Mm -hmm. the last few years there just isn't enough time in the yeah. classroom. Like they're right. like the school year's too short. The school mm-hmm. days is too short. Yep. Um is I mean, is there any way to get around that? Like, I mean, or are we just sort of we're just stuck in this space that until we decide it's worth paying our educators to be full time mm-hmm. and it's worth, you know, investing in education enough to make it a full time experience for students. We're just kind of stuck in this limbo of yeah, I I honestly I have no idea why we still have summer vacation, <laughs> and I know this is like the most unpopular. I, I'm not, it's it's unpopular. People don't want to hear it, but like it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense when you have, like, both parents working full time mm-hmm. all year. It doesn't make any sense for the kids, like who struggle during the summer, like to have access to food, mm-hmm. but also like the summer slide. Mm-hmm. Um, like it just, the only people, it doesn't work. Right. It's, it's poor education policy and we should have a year round school system. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's basically how I feel. Yeah. I, I think that the other problem is that like the, the school day is too short. That's, that's part of it. So in some ways it's too long. So I, I, I taught at an extended day school. So we taught mm-hmm. from eight to four. Um, yeah. and even that felt like, you know, we don't have enough time in the day. Sure. Uh, but the bigger problem is that like most of the time that we spend during the day is like test prep. So it's like, if you have an hour and a half for math and an hour and a half for reading, but so much of that is like practicing, answering questions on a test. It's mm-hmm. like, that's what, that's where your time is going. Right. That's why you can only have social studies twice, twice a week, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we did social studies from like two thirty to like three fifteen <laughs> okay. twice a week. Yeah. And so yeah, that was a constant challenge of like, these kids are like, I'm so bored. I've mm-hmm. been, I've done so much reading and so much math. 
which is like it's you need the mate the reading and the math skills like you, you can't not teach that but it's also just like you're losing so much of what's actually engaging do you feel like that while while you were doing it there was a, a space that you given the resources and the time you could have moved into where you could hit mm-hmm. those you could hit those markers but still be working on engaging subjects like if, if like if there were if the if the idea was let's make this interesting so kids want to pay attention to it mm-hmm. And that and do that in service of the test, right? Like, would like is that is that even possible, or is it? It, just... it is possible. So I I in many ways like in teaching had like the ideal setup. I had a co teacher number one, so I I wasn't going in like screwing up kids. It was like there's a professional here who's going to show you how to do it, mm-hmm. and then you're like you're you're a, the teacher of record in the room participating. But mm-hmm. this model is. It's much better if, mm-hmm. if that if that relationship between you and your co-teacher can work mm-hmm. it's great um and then we also did some team planning so that we did have time to like think about how can we enhance the lesson mm-hmm. so like both make it individual which is hard it's hard to differentiate like 24 kids but you also have to make it engaging right um and so that's just a matter of like well you don't have planning time mm-hmm. so i i now have to have time to like talk to my co-teacher about how to integrate like something fun and with the test prep. And I have to talk to the teacher in the other room so that we're all in the same place in the curriculum. You know, there's just a lot of moving pieces, but I, I do think that you're right that the best lessons are engaging. They are differentiated and they are achieving the objective that's been given to you by the, the powers that be, but mm-hmm. in a way that is also helping you build relationships with students. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, kind of on the nose question mm-hmm. going in like looking at public office uh-huh. both both at your run mm-hmm. and just sort of more broadly to what extent do you feel like public officials have responsibilities as educators of the populace mm. like how much like on the local level like on the local level as community educators and then on the state and national level as you know policy educators who are effectively saying what a thing actually does and what they're actually capable of doing mm-hmm I think I think that I think that public officials do have that responsibility. Um, I I think it's unfortunate because I think it's in a way it's impossible. Like the the environment does not allow you to. the The population thinks they know, <laughs> like they're not looking to be educated, right? Right. People aren't looking to their public officials to like like. You're not voting for expertise anymore. Like that's not what you expect to vote for. You expect to vote for an, a set of policies that you agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's another thing that's kind of changed. It's like, do you vote for a representative to to the best of their ability do what they think is right? Or are you voting for like I voting for a single payer? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm voting for like $15 minimum wage. And if you are like wishy washy on that, like I don't need you. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's a different. I mean, and that's that's part of the challenge of of serving an elected office is that you, you get in the office and you're like, Oh, I see what the realities are now. And I see what's possible. And, and you're trying to educate the public on it, but I don't think the public's inclined to listen. Part of that is because I think people who have been elected have abused that responsibility. Right. They, in some cases just lied, you know, it's just like you lied about the policy you were going to implement and you said it would help me, and it didn't. Right. Right. It's like you hear that all the time on the trail about trade. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you said it's going to be great for us. It sucks. Mm-hmm. Or like Iraq. It's just yeah. like that's, that's just you just lie. So like, why should I trust you to know what you're doing? But I think the other part is that the public is more engaged on the issues. Like people are are more partisan. It's just a a fact, mm-hmm. but not necessarily more understanding of like why things are the way they are or like the dynamics that are shaping policy. Right. So people are very informed, but they're not very like policy aware. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard, you know, line to, to walk. Yeah. Well, I mean, it comes Some like... of my, I'll give you an example. So one of my favorite politicians is David Moon mm-hmm. who, <laughs> yeah, David Moon's incredible and he does a really good job so he's he's a, a state delegate, District Twenty, mm-hmm. representing Montgomery County, or right, Silver Spring, Tacoma Park. Mm-hmm. 
what he does well in in educating the public is on Facebook saying this is the bill I'm passing, and it'll be something like, uh, I think he just co-sponsored the bill with, with Janelle Wilkins on uh, barbers. So like, if you didn't mm-hmm. have a barber's license, it was a criminal offense, and now it's like a fine. They changed it to be a fine. Right. So he educates you on like the issue and tells you why this like why this exists and like what he's trying to do to change it. But mm-hmm. it also always connects to like a broader narrative that he's telling about like where we need to go in our policy. Right. And so that's something I really respect. And I think that it's an example of a legislator like holding up his end of the bargain on the responsibility to inform the public, but also standing up for values and, and, and building a narrative that, that shows the voters can get what he's doing and why he's doing it. Right. Um, so he's someone who I think walks like he walks that line very well, but it's hard. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it was something that I always did in in running or even. I mean, a lot of this is like you know, my thoughts in retrospect. And at the time, you're just like trying to get through the day. Yeah, of yeah, events. for sure. Um, but yeah, but it's it's a hard word. I mean, and it it takes it it takes it uh takes it right back to right back to the beginning of the conversation, mm-hmm. like the idea of you know educating educating on engagement in the policy, like yep. like setting out the ground rules at the beginning and if we're you know if we're in a space where people haven't agreed on the rules of the game mm-hmm. it's really hard to play absolutely that's our episode thanks for listening you can find sebastian's full bio at applying to everything.xyz guests i'd also like to thank humble fire for the use of our theme song mount saint misery off The Great Resolve, available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your music. I'd also like to thank Chiara Scarcella for the design of our logo. Tune in next week for a conversation about cooking, designing your own website, and improv. Talk to you then.